Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP, and we are very pleased to have with us this morning the mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle. So much to ask you about this morning. So pleased you could be with us. Mayor, I want to ask you about something that is not directly on point with regard to East Hampton, but I think actually has applicability to every municipality here in the Valley and in Western Massachusetts. And it's a piece in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, a column by Sarah Weinberger, who is a regular columnist for the Gazette. And Mm -hmm. the Gazette gives this piece, I think, appropriate uh, space and attention on the editorial, on the opinion page. City must ban police from conducting minor traffic stops. And What Sarah Weinberger writes about is the stop in Northampton that recently came to light. The stop actually happened in April, but it was only released on video and in response to public records requests from the shoestring about a traffic stop in Northampton that went very badly. A traffic stop for a headlight being out where the person uh, would have been given a citation and told to fix the ticket, which could be remedied for no fine by showing that the uh, headlight had been repaired. And instead, we have a cop ripping uh, two cops uh, on top of a slight woman, 60 years old, on the ground, being maced for a traffic stop. And Mm. it makes no sense that that's how, forget the bad policing, um, that has been criticized by the mayor and the uh, police chief, but resulted in exoneration from this so-called group, independent group that uh, investigated. It's a point that has been made, and Sarah Weinberger refers back to David Hoos's pieces in the Gazette, David Hoos, local uh, criminal defense attorney, mm-hmm. renowned. Uh, he was a member of the Policing Review uh, Commission, and he pointed out how the traffic stops are disproportionately made with on people of color and people from marginalized communities. And she calls for, as Attorney Hoos has called for, an end to minor traffic stops being made by the police department when there is no need for an armed police officer to make a traffic stop. And I'm wondering whether in your review of policing in East Hampton, and I know you have taken uh, steps towards ha- having uh, alternative responses, whether this is something that is on your agenda or on the police department's agenda to consider at all? Um, certainly, it's a conversation in East Hampton. Um, the I thought uh, Sarah's piece was given very much appropriate space and attention by the Gazette, and the content is spot on. There's some really, um, I would say, not difficult conversations in that, not that they're it's difficult to understand why we're asking them or have to ask them, as especially with this as an example. Um, and I think it's something that we need to look at. Um, I can't say I agree wholeheartedly with any one proposal, whether that's Hoos's or Sarah's or, or whatnot, but I'm open to it. Um, that is one, but many examples. And considering the work that Northampton has done as a city around 
um, race and policing, it's even more um, of an underscored and a extraordinary event. Um, and looking at what we've done with traffic control officers rather than police officers um, at road duties and, and how they can be helpful to traffic and not have to involve um, you know, police enforcement of any ways. I, I would be curious and uh, honestly haven't looked at alternative uh, mechanisms or structures where we could address uh, minor traffic stops in another way from by the police from a, a very safety percent, uh, a public safety perspective. So do you think that, well, let me ask you this, and I'm, I guess I'm, uh -huh. is this a conversation that you are having, and I'm, I don't want to intrude on private conversations, but yeah. is this a conversation that mayors and town managers in Western Massachusetts are having or not um, with each other? Not, I mean, we're certainly talking about what happened in Northampton and compares it comparing it to what are prioritized as far as uh, public safety-related um, stops and where, you know, where the system can, where it goes wrong, uh, where it can be shored up and refocused directly on public safety, i.e. someone's, you know, headlight is out or, a, 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 you know, the rear taillight and whatnot and how to, to sort that out. And I, you know, I'm not making it all light of it, more of like a thought like, hey, a thought exercise is like, well, wait a minute, we know there are other ways to deal with this. We've read about other alternatives. I personally am thinking about it um, and how that fits into our restructure of police and, and looking at data. Um, but I can't say it's an open, I mean, open or private conversation. It's not, uh, I think it's something we're all thinking about on uh, a big a long list around public safety and um, the relationship with policing. Have there been any changes in policing in East Hampton that allow for a non-police, non-armed police officer response where previously there have been? You just referred to the uh, traffic uh, traffic mm -hmm. uh, control uh, officers. Yes, yeah. and, and and is that new in East Hampton? Tell us more about what has happened in terms of. Uh, police responses or non-police responses in your city? Yeah, so around the traffic control officers, um, historically it's been um, shift road details, right? We, most people think of them as road details um, that happen around construction projects or big events um, that redirect traffic around a certain area or maybe a road hazard or, or whatnot. And are those um, now, now not being done by police officers, but by civilians in East Hampton? Um, yes, it's a posted job. Uh, and because of staffing and how people want to spend their time or whatnot, road details aren't mandatory. So there's an app. Uh, you And if you apply to be a traffic control officer, uh, it's a regular hiring process, and then if hired, you go into an application, and it offers you bid on these different jobs. And, um, and are there so other ways in which East Hampton has uh, reduced the number of interactions between police officers and civilians in addition to, the, to these road details? Yeah. We do have civilian emergency. Um, I'm trying to think. In CERT teams, uh, civilian emergency road and traffic response, perhaps, and they're 
Um, they'll do big uh, gatherings, Milton Live, and help with the traffic, help with ins and outs for loading and offloading, redirecting traffic around, you know, where they might be setting up an exhibit or a cultural chaos. Um, and they're trained. It's actually a formal program uh, that you go through. It's a volunteer position, but there's a stipend, and those are all civilians. And we're actually in the process of um, trying to pull together another class, like a call-out if you'd like to be a part of this um, effort, uh, civilian emergency road and traffic details, and you, the class is coming up, I, I want to say, in the next couple of months. So we, we've done it there as well. Um, those are the two major areas where, um, other than the co-responders, who are, again, they're co-responders. They're not individual com- um, responders to a specific uh, dispatch event, but they do work um, after that call and follow-up work uh, with the relationship that they've built with um, whoever is the who needs the assistance. Co-responders, let me interrupt. Co-responders are uh, social workers or helping professionals who go out with yep. police officers to calls? Yes. And, that- and their follow-up is their own or independent follow-ups, like if, if there's a concern or whatnot. Um, they might do a well check on someone. Uh, Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, this is Buzz. Yep. Uh, I, I'd like to uh, peek behind the mayor's curtain here. So, mm. Mm, so really, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes Bless we you. we see, yeah. it, as in this incident with uh, <laughs> Marisol Drioche, we saw um, oh. that uh, after this investigation that Bill alluded to earlier. And after the uh, police chief here in Northampton, Jody Casper, said that he, had, he, the officer involved, had complied with all appropriate uh, regulatory and, and protocols in, in this stop, mm-hmm. um, Mayor uh, Jean-Louise Sciarra um, was quoted as saying she disagrees with both the results of the investigation and with that comment, and she was very concerned about it. Sometimes we see a mayor, like we've seen in Greenfield with your colleague, Roxanne Wiedergartner, um, Mm -hmm. sort of um, not be outside as much the process of policing. She gets more involved and was very supportive of her uh, police chief. And and, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not quite sure what the mayor's job is. I know that I understand it's an executive Mm -hmm. branch function and an important one in in a city like uh, East Hampton. But how much do you actually get involved with the inner workings of the police? Is it just reporting to you, or do you actually have some control over how the police, what protocols they adopt, what regulatory uh, uh, things they comply with or don't comply with? How involved are you? I'm I'm involved with all of the departments. Obviously, police is one that has been first and foremost in uh, the public's eye. And over the last, you know, six years of, of me being, I think it's six years of me being in office, um, and we do talk about the police, sure. I mean, there are very small, even the idea around traffic control officers and, and having that happen. I was very involved with, okay, what does the hiring process look like? How is this impartial? How do we fulfill our, you know, our union obligation as far as the um, union members of East Hampton get first pick and then the um, and retirees second and, and from there, uh, but also where the civilians are filling in, what are they doing? Do they understand what training do they have? Likewise with 
we're talking about co-responders, and it's not just that you have a co-responder, but I was very involved in what's the policy, what's the training for the officers to work with the co-responder and acknowledge the reason why they're there, their expertise, their interventions, their recommendations. So I, I can't say it's a daily one, but we're, you know, uh, police chief um, Alberti and uh, union le- uh, leadership in the police, we're in touch, you know, very frequently about changes in policies or maybe needed changes in policies or honestly what happened on any given day or weekend um, and how it went and, and what's going on and are there concerns? Did it go well? Did we find out that the TCOs are more effective um, than we thought and we can expand their use for more uh, city events that are, are truly civilians? Yeah. Mayor, I'd like to know whether or not you have any data or any conclusions with regard to the dual response model that East Hampton has implemented so that a police officer doesn't go alone to a call or two police officers to a call, but rather a police officer and a person who is trained in mental health issues. Do you have any results that you can report to us with regard to that? To that specific point, no. It's more of a, um, and and not saying it doesn't exist, I certainly will follow up on that, but to look at calls where a co-responder went, what the outcome disposition of the call, you know, we're, we're just seeing less um, of a, I would say, outward presence of police that would be asserting force or, um, or having to say this or we're going to have to cuff you or whatnot. Um, but CSO, our partnership, our partner in this, and the police chief, I'm sure, has some data. We have to write a quarterly uh, report, uh, quarterly biannual uh, report, because it's still grant. A lot of this is grant funded. Some of it is city and some of it is grant. So do you expect to be able to report to the city uh, and its residents and the water community uh, about those results anytime soon? Is there a timeline on this or not? Um, I'm sure there's, you know, I, I'm, I, when I say, um, I sound so like, uh, like it's a, a light topic. Um, the police chief put it in his annual report um, for the um, for the budget and goes to public safety. And I'll be very honest, I don't know if that's a part of the report out, but I am now on that. Just scratched it out on my Monday morning to-do list and honestly should have known that or done it already. I appreciate that so much. We are speaking yeah. with the East Hampton Mayor, Nicole LaChapelle. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. We'll talk more about that East Hampton ordinance and the front page story on banners honoring, honoring uh, veterans in East Hampton and a number of other matters. Stay with us. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Those boarding schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. 
Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 Store, full-value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store, open right now at whmp.com. This Saturday at 7 p.m., the Massachusetts Minutemen take on the New Mexico St. Aggies in the season opener in Las Cruces, New Mexico. You can listen on the new home for UMass football, 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. If it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk, and we are talking this Monday with Mayor Nicole Chappelle of East Hampton. It's kind of our lightning round here, Mayor, many topics to ask you about. Uh-huh. East Hampton City Hall is reopening. Tell our listeners who don't know that it's been closed why and how you get to go back to work. Yeah, so about three weeks ago, this started air uh, air quality issue um, related to a updating of our air handler for the city uh, for city hall. Very important piece of equipment. Um, as we only have three openings in that building, and those are doors, none of the windows open. So we were upgrading um, the building to a healthy building standard, and uh, there were some missteps. Uh, in that process that actually drew down and into workspace um, a lot of particulate and dust that the actual content of was unknown when it happened. Um, And our health director, DPW director, and our building commissioner said, hey, wait a minute, like what's going on? And we ended up having to close the building while things were deep cleaned, while new hearts were fetched, that everything was tuned up. Uh, we've had a very successful weekend. We hope um, staff will start moving back in to City Hall today. Collections will stay um, where they are at 32 Payson, as well as finance staff as they complete a payroll. And then everyone else is moving in. We're hoping to have 100% opening to the public. Our goal is on Wednesday morning. Um, and we're, we're feeling good about Wednesday morning to the public since I'm saying it on the radio. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that the air quality is is good now, healthy? We've been we've been testing and maintaining, working with the air quality unit at the state DP, uh, the state Department of Public Health, who has given us advice about this is what you should get testing for. This is what you should see from the contractor. So we're feeling very confident. Um, the internal team. We had a great conversation last week about the numbers, like the just the quality of clean air. Uh, replacement of some of the um, floor coverings that were near the uh, area where things were being worked on, uh, as well as ceiling tiles, testing, you know, getting moisture out and stuff like that, testing air quality. And we feel um, 
we feel very good about getting back into that building um, today. And we're happy with the results of air quality, the number of air circulation in the building over the weekend. Mayor, I'd like to return to another matter that's been much in the news, and that is the ordinance Mm -hmm. uh, regarding uh, it's not really about crisis pregnancy centers anymore, but it's about pregnancy information and abortion rights Mm -hmm. in East Hampton. Mm -hmm. uh, Very much, very much in the news, passed by the city council. Uh, You vetoed the ordinance Mm -hmm. and then the your veto was sustained by a five to three to one, one abstention vote by the city council. Mm-hmm. Is that matter now over or not? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. Um, there's certainly nothing to say that a member of city council or a member of the public can be working with city council to reintroduce something along, you know, the, the content of that ordinance. Um, but as of that piece of ordinance and it's, it's a trip through city process. It's um, done. Let me turn to one other matter, if I might, and this is another story. This on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Dateline, East Hampton, Banner, Honors, mm-hmm. Caring Parent. Uh, and it is a story about honoring veterans in East Hampton, something I did not know about. Perhaps you could share with our listeners what yeah. the program is, who's sponsoring it, and what it means to the city. Yeah, so we've actually been doing this for several years. We were one of the first cities in East Hampton. Um, one of our detectives, Chad Alexander, was down uh, vacationing in Florida, and I can't remember the name of the city, saw these these banners of, like, veterans who lived in the city currently or had lived, um, kind of just honoring their service. Uh, I really like the idea there was a company behind making the banners, and he got in touch with them and then brought the idea forward to the police chief and to myself and then to city council. Um, it's sponsored by the police um, association, uh, and they organize it and take you know the information to get the banners. The banners, when we started out, were $200 a piece, but if someone could not afford um, that was no matter. They still were able to get a banner up. And then after the banner um, had hung, uh, you could get the banner back. Like you'll see, if you drive around town, you'll see some people have them on their houses now, or they want it rehung every year. And there's always new um, veterans who find out about the program. It's now $150 because they've got a pretty good scholarship fund. So they can absolutely ensure that money is no object um, for a family or a person who wants to remember an East Hampton vet. And it's, um, it's really, I mean, the article is, is really touching and kind of goes to the point of why this is such a popular program is that it brings back some history and it allows that, you know, that honor that comes to a family who has somebody who serves their country. But also it share, you can share the story of who the person was. Um, you know, before, after, even during um, them wearing the their uniform and serving our country. Uh, but it's very popular. Uh, we usually run out. We, we've added brackets. The police have added brackets every year to put more banners up. Um, so I see no end in sight. And it's, it's really nice to drive by somebody's house and they, they have their banner on their, on their home or um, hanging uh, year-round. Um, it's, it's a point of, of pride and kind of gives you a, 
a little bit of uh, 3D dimension of the people of East Hampton. The Gazette article says today, let me quote one sentence, the Banner program exists in other towns and cities across the country, including Holyoke and Belchertown. Hadley Select Board recently approved the Banner idea for a new town committee and may soon adopt a similar program. Obviously, you're very pleased with what has happened. I think this story mm -hmm. indicates that this, this program had began some six years ago, which I did not realize. Uh, yeah. I, I'm wondering whether there's any uh, push in East Hampton for other groups to be similarly recognized for their contributions to the country. Not that I know of. Um, we have done, we've, we've thought about doing, and I remember uh, Holyoke doing this, years ago around the centennial where there were banners around historical um, happenings or buildings in the town. Um, and we, we've been talking and we've talked about that in town loosely. Um, one of the issues is how the banners get up and down on a frequent manner. Um, right now, the equipment, it, the city doesn't own that equipment. It has to be borrowed and procured and, and all of that. So when we've looked at doing other similar things, it's been, do we buy a parrot? Do we really have a need for cherry pickers to do this several times a year? Um, and it's not that we do or we don't, or it's a priority. It just is at that level of, of bubbling conversation. But, you know, we're always open to an idea. And given the success of uh, the veterans program, you know, definitely open. We, we know that there is um, there's an appetite for it. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with the mayor of East Hampton on this Mayor's Monday, Nicole LaChapelle. Thank you so much, Madam Mayor, for being with us. We really appreciate your time and insight. Thank you. Great day. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Michael Morris is out as Amherst superintendent. The resignation of Dr. Morris occurred just about three months after three middle school staff members were placed on paid leave following a Title IX investigation. In a joint statement, Dr. Morris and the school committee said it was a mutual decision to end his seven-year tenure as superintendent and that there was no wrongdoing on Morris's part to cause the leadership change. Potential plans for a 235-unit housing development in Hadley are raising eyebrows and could face some significant challenges when it comes to zoning laws. The Daily Hampshire Gazette reports that an Indiana-based company called Trinitas has entered into a contract to redevelop the former Babb family farm. Town zoning laws generally prohibit multiple residences on one parcel, but the state's so-called smart growth programs allow for exemptions to these rules. According to project applicants, about 20% of the units would qualify as affordable housing, with the rest being market rate. The development would include pickleball courts, a public park, and could potentially increase the population of Hadley by up to 25%. Police are investigating after a car ended up in a Holyoke Canal. The incident happened around 1.45 p.m. on Saturday at the intersection of Canal and Lyman Street. The gray sedan was pulled out of a canal by a large tow truck. However, it was too deep for crews to make a rescue attempt. There's no information on who may have been in the car. This is the second time in a week that a car has gone into the Holyoke Canal. City officials in Westfield are denying all allegations of wage theft made by a longtime police officer. 
The Westfield News reports that Jason Perrin, a 24-year veteran of the police department, has filed a lawsuit against the city claiming he and other officers were not paid adequately for working overtime. Perrin has filed a lawsuit on behalf of more than 70 members of the Westfield Patrol Officers Coalition and is asking the court to designate it as a class action lawsuit. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Late last week, we got a call from State Senator Joe Comerford, who was very excited about a bill that had just passed and been signed into law by the governor for which she deserves and, and has received a lot of credit. Here's the conversation that we had with State Senator Joe Comerford. We welcome back to the show Senator Joe Comerford, who was noted in a story today from the State House News under the headline, Nurse Assistant Exams to be Offered in Languages Other Than English, Opening Career Pathways. Senator Comerford, I know this is an issue you've been very concerned about and have been working on for a long time. And today there is a breakthrough and breaking news. So if you would kindly tell our listeners what it is. Sure, Bill, and thanks so much for your interest in this really important topic. Way back, actually, five years ago, 2019, Lori Millman from the Center for New Americans contacted me and my team and said, hey, you all, things have to get much better for students coming from other nations who want to enter the workforce, especially around certified nurse, nurse licensure. Uh, and Lori detailed in pretty stark terms the barriers that prospective employees face. And she knew this because Center for New Americans does some incredible work uh, offering training courses around CNA licensure. 
And so Lori really pulled back the curtain for us and showed us the ways in which the state had put up far too many barriers, including uh, the one that has been taken down through the budget, through what's called an outside section in the budget around offering the language in offering the test rather in multiple languages, which is a pragmatic step toward getting uh, toward really getting more diverse candidates to feel like they can and should take the test. Um, and of course, we need diverse people in the workforce, especially the healthcare workforce. And then also really ensuring that the test uh, actually tests and evaluates competency around the skills of certified nursing assistants, not around English, which is really what it was doing. Okay, let's take one quick detour. An outside section of the budget is what? So budgets are mostly about numbers, as you know. This, an outside section is a policy, a bill, essentially, that's tacked on to the outside of the budget. So as the budget passes, some of these more policy provisions can pass with it. And this was one of the outside sections. There weren't very many. So we're very heartened that this was able to get done. Um, and uh, this passed along with the $56.2 billion budget and was signed into law. And, Bill, you may remember that we tried to do this under the Baker administration. And uh, the then former governor, um, Baker, very misguidedly uh, vetoed it. So it came through in an economic development bill, um, and the governor vetoed it. So it was a setback, but only temporarily, uh, because we were back at it again. The Commonwealth desperately needs more people, skilled people in healthcare, and particularly with regard to a certified nursing aid. In the State House news story that I read, there was a mention. There was mention of a part of the hearing on this bill in which a nurse who had worked uh, for Doctors Without Borders for years, was extremely competent, passed the practical part of the exam with flying colors on the first try, but couldn't pass the written part because English was like her third or fourth language, I think. And I think exactly. that's, that's part of, or a significant part of what this bill that you've been advocating for addresses. Tell us more about that. Sure. I mean, that's really, you summed it up very well, Bill. This um, Asani um, was just the most unbelievable person, so gifted. And it's just what we were talking about earlier, where the test has been really testing for English competency, um, not on the skills of being a certified nursing assistant. And here is this person who worked with Doctors Without Borders, you know, um, for her career before coming to the U.S., wants to get back into the healthcare workforce. We desperately need her competence, and she's having trouble entering. Um, and certified nursing assistants um, are off, it's often a pathway toward an RN, an LPN, a doctor, you know, a, a, an MD, um, because folks have to get in. They have to make the money to support themselves and their families. This is one way to do it and can then continue that path toward licensure in the U.S and in Massachusetts specifically. Well, I want to celebrate your victory and your leadership in making this happen for the benefit of people across the Commonwealth. I would like to have a reflection from you, if you're willing, as to why this should have been so difficult. It strikes me, 
I, really? This is news? This had to be a five-year fight in order to have people who are competent to provide medical care and allow them to have a job and provide that care for people in the Commonwealth? Why should that have been so difficult? In the middle of a healthcare workforce crisis, right? That's another piece. You and I both know that part of what's happening in our hospitals, nursing homes, visiting nurse organizations is that we just don't have enough people who want to do the difficult work of nursing. Uh, and we need that as our population becomes older. Um, we need it. Uh, and then we need, on top of that, a greater diversity of people because we need to provide culturally competent care and care in the language that people speak. You know, so it's, you know, many layers to this conundrum. Um, why is it so difficult? It's not clear to me, Bill, um, why it was so difficult. Actually, Lori Millman, I will say, and my hat is off to her and her students for really raising their voices. I, I visit with Center for New American Students pretty regularly, thanks to Lori's um, great advocacy. And I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from students, you know, who desperately want to work. That's what they want to do. They're here to, you know, start a new life or a new chapter of their life with uh, their families or loved ones. And, you know, they told me pretty significantly horrifying stories to the, you know, the credit of the Healy Driscoll administration. They took this up right away. But it's only the first step. There are a couple of other pieces of the bill that I still have to push forward. So it's a conundrum as to why this has been so hard. And really credit here, I, I give to Lori Millman and the students for cent from Center for New Americans and the staff, uh, with whom I visit fairly regularly because of their great advocacy. Um, and, you know, one thing I want to really underscore for listeners here is that this language advance is important, right, for all the reasons we're talking about. We need to measure people's skills at nursing, um, not at necessarily at being pro completely proficient English speakers, because, in fact, Many of them are quite skilled. We need to know they can be the nurses that we need them to be at the bedside. And then on top of that, they can offer culturally competent care. They can offer care in multiple languages. It will make us stronger uh, many times over for them to be in our hospitals or doctor's offices or visiting nurse organizations. But there's more we can and should do. And here's two, two examples of other provisions in the bill. One example that's completely glaring and, uh, is that a student right now who falls short, if they fall short, does not get um, the information back from the agency, the testing, about where they fall short. So they just know, oh, you didn't, you, you fell short in the practica or you fell short in the written part of the licensing exam. Uh, but where in the written part? There are many parts, right? Many things you have to know. And that just that's just a terrible barrier, and meaning they have to study the entire content all over again. The other thing is that, you know, we want them to be able to have regular access to the test and for that regular access to be a test which looks like the training that they've received. And right now there is a mismatch between what instructors think and believe they should be teaching and what the test is measuring and the test changes and there isn't good enough communication with the testing agency. Again, this makes no sense at all. Um, Massachusetts should and can develop the standards for certified nurse licensure. 
we should have a training curriculum that actually matches what we hope these good folks will learn. Um, and then we should have a test that measures whether or not they've succeeded in learning this. And right now there is a mismatch. We are speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford about her bill just passed into law and signed by the governor about certified nursing assistants. A big win for the senator, a big win for the Commonwealth. We'll continue our conversation with the senator right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know a woman of impact? Nominate her now for the Business West Women of Impact Awards, honoring women who are respected for accomplishments in their professional life, who give back to the community, and are sought out as advisors and mentors. Business West is looking for the 2023 Women of Impact. Help Business West discover them. Go to businesswest.com to nominate a woman you know making an impact in the community. The deadline to nominate is September 5th. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com slash family. My name is Silas Kopp. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Senator Joe Comerford. Let me ask you this. The critics, I suspect, would say, well, wait a second, isn't it, impo isn't it important for uh, uh, CNAs to be able to communicate with their patients, and most patients will speak English, some obviously will speak Spanish as well, but if... if, if multiple languages. Or multiple languages. Multiple. Why, why is the person who is competent in terms of their practical skills in your in your judgment and in the, in the judgment of the legislature in adopting this measure, why and how does that person act as a uh, competent and professional CNA uh, if there is some language issue? No, it's a very good question. Again, the good folks who are taking this exam have English. They're in English courses with places like Center for New Americas. So it's not like they have no English whatsoever. And every day they're at... Center for New Americans, every day they're on a job, potentially, they're getting stronger and stronger. Um, you know, the issue with 
having them take a test for licensure proficiency is that the test is very technical. Uh, and there are, you know, there's language and ways of wording things that are, you know, very difficult for new English speakers, even those who have a, a fine proficiency for conversation. But to take a test in a highly stressed environment with pretty high stakes, you know, with very skilled being tested verbally or orally or written, you know, just makes it very difficult for people to demonstrate their proficiency with the content while they're also being asked to demonstrate their proficiency with language, with the English language. So we just want them to, to demonstrate their proficiency with the content of nursing that they're being tested on. And then we can also work to, you know, to make sure that they're um, able to be by the bedside in ways that are good for them and good for the patient. In terms of next steps, are there others to still, to, still to take? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, there are other pieces of the bill, like what I was talking to you about. There are uh, there's to better alignment of the test and training curricula. I believe that has to happen. There's a real commitment to regionally equitable and frequent testing for students so that uh, they don't have to drive across the state to get tested from Western Massachusetts, for example, although that's better now because of the Work and Family Mobility Act, but still a barrier for folks, right, who may not have access to a car or have one car for a family. And we want them to be um, shared. We want the test results to be shared with them in a pretty granular way so they can know where they have to get stronger if they fall short in a skill area or two. There are many other things that we have to do uh, that are, you know, well understood in the, in, in the advocacy world working to break down barriers for folks who want to become certified nursing aides. And the Department of Public Health, as I understand the, the news report from the State House News Service, is that there is still a great deal of latitude with the Department of Health in terms of crafting rules and regulations with regard to the exam itself. Could you tell Absolutely. us? Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that was a quote that I have in the in that particular article. And as you know, Bill, we file legislation so that we can have an ability to have a conversation uh, inside the building about and with the administration about what needs to happen on a particular issue. But legislation is not always needed to make this change. And so the Department of Public Health has the ability to work on this issue without legislation. So it could, for example, contract out with a provider that would strengthen the communication between training or trainers and the folks who are crafting the test. The, the vendor could also um, increase the frequency of tests offered. The vendor could also decide to send results back in a more granular format so the people can understand what they need to continue to study if they don't make it through. So it can do a lot of things without the legislature passing a bill to tell them to do it. And that was really the nature of my comment. I think this is a great step by the Healy Driscoll administration to be able to say we are going to support this, unlike the Baker administration, which decided that it was not going to, uh, and again, in a very misguided decision, I believe. And I look forward to seeing how far DPH believes it can go with the, the latitude provided to it. The new exam will be utilized beginning, I take it, in 2024? That's very likely, um, although we'll need to confirm that. And we need to confirm also 
how they're going to seek comment from, you know, people like Asani, right, and Lori and others in terms of the languages offered and what other changes could be made at the same time as it's really relooking at, at this exam and increasing the number of people who feel like they want to, you know, grapple with the content of becoming a CNA and then take the exam to become one. Senator Comerford, this has been a long fight for you, and I would appreciate your reflections, and if you're willing to to share with us how it makes you feel that you've accomplished something that is of such magnitude and importance for people of all ages, but particularly people who are in really dire situations and in need of CNAs, you're going to make their lives a lot better. I'm wondering how that feels for you. Well, Bill, you're very kind. You know, this is one small movement forward in the right direction. I, you know, I think one of the one of the great things about being a legislature legislator is that we get to hear from people like the Folk Center for New Americans, who tell us exactly what has to be done. Mira is also another advocacy organization that threw down on this, uh, and so you know they are in touch with us, and we consider ourselves to be their allies here as well. And it's a great privilege to be able to see some advances in the right direction amid so many other things that still need to be done. I think the greatest sadness, I'll use that word, about being a legislator is the opposite side of that coin, which is even as we do this, and we must, and like you say, it's really almost the definition of a no-brainer to get this done. We know that so much more has to be accomplished to fully break down the barriers for immigrants uh, wanting to become you know, members of our community so that they can work to the fullest extent possible um, that they're interested in. This is coming from them, really, the hunger that they bring with them to succeed in this nation. And we've just got to make it easier. And I believe we can and should. And, I, you know, this is clearly I'm on that path and in that community of people that want us to benefit from the gifts and talents of these new Americans so very much and uh, want to work with the administration and my colleagues in the legislature to find the right interventions to make that possible. Well, then one last question. The gifts and talents that these people bring are gifts and talents that this country and this state and your district need. This Uh, We're talking about thousands and thousands of vacancies of health care jobs that can't be filled today. No, you're completely right. I mean, health care... As you know, we have a workforce shortage across many sectors, actually more than we could name in the time you have on this program. But perhaps the most acute and present and the one I hear almost about most is in the healthcare industry, whether it's from the hospitals, Bay State or Cooley Dickinson, nursing homes uh, like Linda Manor, uh, you know, or visiting nurse associations or organizations, um, doctor's offices. Uh, healthcare practices. We need folks who will enter the the healthcare workforce. We need them. And we are held back because of these shortages. People can't find doctors. They can't enter practices. Um, Hospitals can't increase their patient load, not because they don't have the beds, but sometimes because they don't have the staff to be able to staff them in a safe and secure way. So this is, you know, an intensely real barrier. Um, in our region, especially in Western Mass, where we have some disproportionate shortages because of the rural nature of the work. Uh, you know, we have different salary structures. We have a hard time getting a workforce to work because of public transportation. 
you know, there are enough barriers doing that. We, we can't also have a terrible barrier in the available workforce. Well, congratulations, Senator. We appreciate your work and your leadership. I guess the last question, is the bill now law? It's law. Yeah, it's law because the governor signed it. This was one of the provisions. She vetoed, as you know, some provisions, and I'm happy to talk about those vetoes um, in a, another show. I'm pushing back against a number of them, but she did not veto this to her credit. Um, governor Healy did not veto this. It is now law. The Department of Public uh, Health will take up this work. We've been in touch with them saying, hey, gang, how are you going to figure out what language is? And hey, while you're doing this, why don't you do these other things as well? So we were going to we're going to keep pushing good colleagues um, in their work and support them talking to people like Lori, like Asani. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am hopeful for a good and quick outcome. Well, congratulations and thank you so much for your time, insight today and your leadership. Well, I appreciate you so much and I appreciate your interest in this. Take good care. You too, Senator Comerford. Thank you. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth supported by adult 4-H club leaders are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413-545-0611. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org. WHMP Northampton and W. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. Um, we, Bill, last December uh, in our afternoon program, we uh, had conversations with some folks about this uh, proposal by Eversource to install and operate a uh, steel main between a new point of delivery station in Longmeadow, that is a new gas delivery station in Longmeadow, and uh, in Springfield to put a pipeline through a series of communities, um, which uh, is being met with uh, great neighborhood resistance. Um, this gas project, they want to construct uh, this gas delivery point and new natural gas uh, pipeline, despite the fact that there are many who say that, number one, it isn't necessary, and number two, it is absolutely in the middle of an urban area, the wrong place to construct either. With us to talk about this and to update us on what's been happening since December is the chair of the Long Meadow Pipeline Awareness Group, Gary Levine, and Naya Tenerowitz. She is with the uh, Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. Um, and let me start with you, Gary. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so uh, since December, a lot has happened. Um, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the most important updates and let us know where things stand right now? Okay, well, Eversource was required to submit an <coughs> a uh, 
Environment Impact Report to uh, MEPA, which is Massachusetts Environmental Protection Act Office. And they submitted a, a early draft last August, and then they were told to work on that and put, a, put in a draft final report, which they submitted in May. We had the right to make comments, and many people from Longmeadow and from Springfield and from all around the state, in fact, sent in a lot of comments objecting to many of the points in their environmental impact report. In July, Rebecca Tepper, the uh, Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs, came out with a response where she pretty much told them, and I'll quote her words if you don't mind. She says that the environmental, the draft environmental impact report does not adequately and properly comply with MEPA. The, 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 the draft environmental impact report does not fully explain the purpose and the need for the project. It relies on a worst case scenario without going into any historical precedents for that happening, et cetera. And there are other parts which I'll address a little Let later. Let me just clarify this. So that the, the Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act says that if you're going to do a project of this sort that's going to have an obvious potential to impact the environment, then you have to detail certain things. And th what you're talking about is whether or not the report, which Eversource generated for uh, to, to comply with that policy act, um, adequately uh, meets those standards which are required, what impact is it going to have on the environment? You're saying it doesn't. It's saying it doesn't, and the Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs agreed that it doesn't, at this point, adequately address any of those facts. So Could let's you, rewind the tape a little bit okay. um, and, and talk about, you're from Longmeadow. Yes, I am. And your concern in the Longmeadow uh, Pipeline Awareness Group as chair um, you're really concerned about this gas station that they're talking about putting in to Longmeadow. What's bothering you about it? Well, number one, it's in, an, it's in a residential neighborhood, right by an element. It's going to pass the pipeline coming out of there will pass right by an elementary school very, within less than a quarter of a mile from that point of delivery. The, these point of delivery, these gas metering stations have been known to release methane, and other gases as they operate. And the pipeline will run right through Longmeadow, through residential neighborhoods, and then enter Springfield and pass through two environmental justice communities, again, near an elementary school and very close to a daycare center. Well, let's talk about that with Naya Tenerowitz. Uh, Naya, thank you for being with us. Pleasure and, to be here. And you're with the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. So, uh, first of all, what, what did Gary mean when he said environmental justice communities? What, what is that? So there are specific criteria in Massachusetts for what qualifies as an environmental justice community. So it's generally communities that are majority people of color uh, or other ethnic mi minorities, people who are lower economic income brackets, uh, larger populations who don't speak English as their first language, various uh, at-risk populations that are more vulnerable uh, to environmental impacts as well as generally already targeted by greater amounts of pollution and toxic em emissions, which is the case for Springfield. Now, I remember asking you back in December when we last spoke, I, I asked you whether you thought that the choice of the route for this pipeline was because that is the best route to run a pipeline, or is it because there are vulnerable 
populations who are less likely to object than more affluent populations. It's really hard to even pick that apart. Ultimately, there is no good route for this pipeline. It will pass through vulnerable communities no matter which way it goes. However, the route that it is taking passes 100% through environmental justice census blocks. So there, it passes exclusively through communities and that are already facing higher levels of pollution. It's, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. It's hard to split apart. But ultimately, there is no good route that does not negatively impact the environmental justice communities in Springfield. When you say there's no good route, you mean there shouldn't be a pipeline? I mean there shouldn't be a pipeline. Their entire rationale for building it makes no sense because they're talking about, you know, a single point of failure and lack of reliability. But even if we built this $65 million pipeline, we would still have a single point of failure at the Bliss Street Regulator Station, which is in downtown Springfield and about 30 feet away from a high-speed high, uh, roadway and 30 feet away from a train station. It is not a particularly secure location. And, and we, want to, we want to go more into that detail. But um, let me ask you, Gary Levine. Well, first of all, uh, as chair of the Long Meadow Pipeline Awareness Group, I have an admission to make. I'm a total hypocrite. I fought like crazy against the Kinder Morgan pipeline proposal that ran right next to my property and through my communities in the hill towns of Western Massachusetts. I uh, deplore these pipelines, um, but I've got, I replaced my wood stove with a nice little gas fireplace and my, I cook every night on something that uses gas. Um, where do you think, do you think we, we need more gas, more, uh, more gas, and if so, where should we cite these things? Well, at this point, it's, uh, I don't think we need more gas pipelines bringing in more gas. That right now, Massachusetts is committed by 2050 to get to a net zero carbon emissions. And the only way we can do that is by eliminating oil and gas specifically. And uh, it, we have to transition to other forms of reliable energy, solar, wind, uh, heat pumps, geothermal. We have to go along that route. Or number one, we won't meet the law, which requires this by 2050. And we are seeing the evidence right now of climate change. I was in, high, I was in college. I was a senior in college at the very first Earth Day in 1969, and we marched. I was a biology major, and we marched. And I, I taught later on environmental science. We saw the signs of what was going on. We knew the ozone layer at that point was in trouble. We, we saw the early effects of uh, global warming. And people thought we were liberal nuts. And we were sounding the alarm back then. And I remember t when I taught environmental science, I said, look, this is starting to happen. This was in the 90s. And we already saw the effects on the ozone layer, et cetera. It's happening. And now with the climate, we saw what's going on in the last year, even in the last few months, climate change is real. And unless we go away from carbon emissions, this is just going to get worse. Uh, Naya Tanerowitz, I'm really interested, as a member of the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition, how aware are the communities you're trying to protect by keeping the pipeline uh, from there? And how active are they in your activism? Uh, the members of the community who know about this are very active, or at least as active as they're able to be. A lot of folks are pretty busy with just their general lives, but... Uh, in terms of being informed, Eversource has done a very, very poor job of actually in informing the communities that would be directly impacted by this. They're in, in their environmental impact report, that was one of the things that 
we objected to in our comments and that Rebecca Tepper highlighted. She set out specific criteria for the outreach that they need to do in those communities because what, what they've done so far is completely inadequate. Rebecca Tepper is our uh, environmental chief, our uh, climate chief in Massachusetts. She actually She's came the, in. And, the secretary and, of the EEA. Tepper didn't come. It was uh, Melissa yeah. Hoffer, right. who's our climate chief, and two other members of the EEA who are focused on environmental justice came uh, and we gave them a tour of the both ends of the pipeline of the route along it and introduced them to the neighborhoods. And they were really shocked to see how terrible the siting of this project would be and how much it would put our communities at risk. It passes, this pipeline passes within a quarter of a mile of three schools, two elementary, one middle, and it passes within less than 500 feet of Sumner Ave Elementary School and Daycare. This Has is, the Springfield uh, city government played a role in this? Have they been involved? They have been. They actually passed a resolution against the pipeline. They do not want this pipeline. They, uh, our Springfield City Council President, Jesse Letterman, came out to talk with, uh, with Melissa Hoffer and the other EEA folks when we were at the Bliss Street Station end of it uh, to really share where City Council is at on this. They do not want this pipeline, and, and neither do we. Is this a major pipeline, or is this one of those... Uh, Pipelines off a pipeline. I forget what they're called. It's a pipeline off a pipeline. I don't know what the official term is, but yes, it would tap into the larger interstate Tennessee gas pipeline. Uh, but in the grand scope of things, for like the Tennessee Gas Corporation, this is a drop in the bucket. It for EverSource, it's it's more of them getting some return on their investment yeah. of having bought Columbia Gas. But in the grand scope of things. It's not a huge pipeline, but it would have a huge impact on our communities. And could you go back and explain where this uh, subsidiary pipeline would go from and to? And in answering that, could you tell us who is supposed to get the gas? In other words, you're going to, you've told us about the detriment. Who is supposed to benefit other than the company? At this point, Eversource is claiming that this is supposed to be a reliability project. Where the a what? Reliability project. I thought that's what you said. Yeah. Okay. Basically, a backup pipeline in yeah. case something happens to existing okay. gas supply. But what? it it would supply oh. the whole Springfield service area as a backup. Um, so that's a, a pretty decent-sized service area. But we have not had any gas interruptions in the 70 years that we've had our existing pipeline. And Rebecca Tepper, in her decision on the draft environmental impact report in her statement, stated that there, there really isn't a justification for why this pipeline, why this moment, what makes this so much higher risk than all the other areas in the state that ha have similar situations in terms of their gas pipelines. So she's saying that she doesn't see the need for the pipeline? Yes. It's, it's that she, simple? She, she questioned it very, very heavily. And she also critiqued that they barely, dis they barely explored uh, alternative options at all. They barely looked at renewable energy. In their over 300-page primary draft and the environmental draft impact report, or draft environmental impact report, they had maybe a paragraph and a half, maybe two paragraphs talking about alternatives to this pipeline at all um, and really didn't provide any substantial investigation into what those alternatives could be. So she has both, Tepper has both critiqued whether this pipeline is necessary and critiqued the fact that Eversource did not actually look at alternative solutions or renewable energy meaningfully at all. Let me ask you one other uh, somewhat 
legalistic question. Pipelines are generally uh, generally run between many states. Um, is this a matter that's subject to jurisdiction just of the state or of the federal okay. government? Who decides this? Okay, For the, our uh, local people, sorry, who's uh, going to decide? Originally, the federal government through FERC, which is the Federal Environmental Regulatory Commission. Energy. They, federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Yeah, Energy, yep. sorry. They, re- they, they approved the Tennessee gases part of the project. That was a federal thing because it is interstate. What's hap- what we're proposing what we're proposing is right now the hookup in Longmeadow coming off of the Tennessee gas pipeline to hook up to Eversource's proposed pipeline. That is what we're looking at the state to so stop the state, that part of it. So the state can kill this part. Yes, of it. yes. The there energy. Two, there were two processes going on at the same time. The MEPA process we just talked about, which looks at the env- environmental impact, and then there's the. Energy Facility Siting Board, which actually grants the permits to do the project. And MEPA on their own can't stop this pipeline. They can only advise the Energy Facility Siting Board. So really the decision maker here is the Energy Facility Siting Board. However, And is that a state agency or a federal agency? Yes, that's a state agency. agency, Sorry. However, we're also reaching out to, you know, we have some state legislation to try and pass a moratorium for gas system expansions like this. And we also have a petition to Governor Healy asking her to put a halt to gas system expansions until we have a concrete plan for a just and rapid transition to a clean energy future. Mm, so well, we are pursuing some other options of ways yeah. that this thing could be stopped. Before we take a break, I have one more question. I guess I'll ask you, Gary Levine, although maybe you and I, Tenerius, can answer it. Why does ever, I assume the answer to my question is going to be profits, right? Why does Eversource want to put in a gas pipeline that may never be used, and it's just sort of a supplement for what they already have? Why is it profitable? Well, because, number one, they, they do make money on doing infrastructure. There is a lot of money that they get for doing infrastructure, and then the cost of the infrastructure, which is not needed, not necessarily not wanted by anybody in the area, is passed on to the ratepayer. So we'll be essentially paying for something we don't need, don't want, and, the, and is unnecessary. Oh, yeah, so it's, it's actually, about... Actually, we're, we're the ever source. Yes, Thank you. we not only yeah. would pay for building the pipeline, but also the 9.67% return on investment that they could charge us annually. Yeah. Um, so it's both... Well, so there, it's, it's all about money, but it's also about them continuing to exist as a fossil fuel corporation through the clean energy transition. They're trying to entrench themselves right now. We're going to continue our conversation with Gary Levine, the chair of the Long Meadow Pipeline Awareness Group, and with uh, Naya Tanerowitz of the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition about this pipeline and gas station, I guess is the way to put it, <laughs> in Long Meadow and through Springfield environmental justice communities. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back uh, talking to uh, the chair, Gary Levine, of the Longmeadow Pipeline Awareness Program, I mean, project group, awareness group is what we have. And we're talking to uh, Naya Tenerowitz from the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition about the proposal of Eversource to put a gas facility in Longmeadow in the middle of a residential and school neighborhood and then run a pipeline 
through Springfield environmental justice communities. Um, so you have a meeting tonight, uh, Gary Levine, uh, the Longmeadow Pipeline Awareness Group. Um, what's that about? Well, one of, the, one of the major topics will be to initiate a letter writing campaign to Eversource and to other entities, pretty much telling Eversource, which has dropped out of the American Gas Council, and they, they claim that they're looking to improve efficiency and in, the direct people to, to renewables, to pretty much tell them, if that's your direction you want to go in, and if Massachusetts is moving in the direction to go to net zero by 2050, why, did, why spend $65 million or so dollars on a project that's not needed, not wanted, and unnecessary, and instead put that money to help people transition to renewable energy you know, in the state with solar and wind and geothermal and heat pumps, et cetera. Use that money to get, to get people to move in the direction that the state and the rest of the world really wants us to move into. Gary, is it possible that Eversource, could this battle be both won and lost? That is, could Eversource end up wanting to put in a gas facility in Longmeadow without doing the pipeline that goes through Springfield community? Because without, the, without the pipeline, there's no need for the point of delivery that they want to put into Longmeadow. That's coming point off... Point of, of delivery means that's where they put the gas. They bring yeah, the, the gas into... The yeah, the gas the is coming facility. off of a larger pipeline. Not only that, the pipeline they propose is a high-pressure pipeline, three times or so higher than the current pipeline that goes through. And the claimant's reliability... Will they use it? Will it be sitting there? Will gas be flowing through it? We never got that information, whether gas will actually be flowing through this all the time, or is it just sitting there to do nothing unless it's necessary? And again, they, they only proposed a worst-case scenario if something happened to the current pipeline, never addressing any other scenarios, and Rebecca Tepper in her answer pretty much said that. You've only looked at one worst-case scenario, never talked about the need for this other than that, Never talk about n using non-fossil you know, non, non fuel alternatives or using no-build alternatives, right. using what you have currently. So, Naya Tenerowitz, um, forgive me because I can't remember when because my memory isn't what it should be. I think, I, was, I know I was traveling, and I think it might have been in March of 2020, but I remember that there was a terrible event in the center of Springfield explosions caused by gas leaks um, from uh, municipal gas lines, right? You there, well, there was, a, there was a gas explosion in Springfield in 2011 or 2012. That, was it that, that was, long ago? It was. Yeah. The, there was, uh, <laughs> in 2019, I believe, there was a series of gas explosions in the Merrimack Valley that uh, Columbia Gas was responsible for, and Columbia Gas was kicked out of the state and Eversource bought all of their properties um, and now Eversource is trying to build this pipeline. Well, they also just got fined for, in Maynard, for massively mismanaging a pipeline leading to an explosion um, because their safety practices were absolutely abysmal. So that really does not, that's another community that's been hit by a gas explosion tragedy. I believe that that did result in a death. Um, and it's, it's just more evidence of why we do not want Eversource to be building this in these residential neighborhoods. I think also, forgive my memory, because it, it leaks, but I think that these gas pipelines uh, leak at a rate of about four times a week nationally. There's four leaks that, that are detected in, in these sorts of gas pipelines that they want to run through Longmeadow and 
Springfield. Is Abs that, do absolutely. I have that right? Yeah, something like that. Gas leaks are extremely common. Not all of them are reported. Often they aren't dealt with very expeditiously. They're, you know, people think there's a gas leak and then they'll report it and there won't be a lot of action. Um, but there's also a lot of very small levels of leaks in homes that a recent study found result in more than 15% of childhood asthma cases in Massachusetts are caused by gas appliances in home. So it's, it's even worse than we previously thought. Yikes. Yeah. If people want to get uh, learn more about this or want to uh, express their support or write a letter that Gary Levine is talking about, how do they get in touch with you folks? They go to stopthetoxicpipeline.org. Is that one word? Stop the toxic pipeline dot org. Yep, no spaces altogether. That'll take them to our website. Any new information will be posted there. And right at the top of our page, they can find a link to sign the petition to Governor Healy asking her to put a halt to this project and all other gas system expansions in Massachusetts. And Gary Levine, if people want to don't do ex you want? Are you soliciting donations? And if so, what will the money go to? No, we're not soliciting donations at this point, but if they go to our Facebook page, which is Longmeadow Pipeline Awareness Group, we will be putting a lot of information up. We'll be putting up a, basically a toolkit on how to write letters to Eversource and to other officials to try to get Eversource to pretty much put their money where their mouth is, that they're claiming that they want efficiency and they want to help us transition. Use this $65 million or so to help people do that instead of building a point of delivery station, which at this point might have six or seven buildings on it, in addition to this pipeline that's going to run through Longmeadow into Springfield, not needed, not wanted, not necessary. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Naya Tanerowitz, uh, Gary Levine, thank you not only for joining us today, but for all you're doing to stop what sounds like uh, harmful and um, foolish. Uh, I'll be, uh, nobody profits but Eversource. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. We Thank will you. be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Michael Morris is out as Amherst superintendent. The resignation of Dr. Morris occurred just about three months after the three middle school staff members were placed on paid leave following a Title IX investigation. In a joint statement, Dr. Morris and the school committee said it was a mutual decision to end his seven-year tenure as superintendent and that there was no wrongdoing on Morris's part to cause the leadership change. Potential plans for a 235-unit housing development in Hadley are raising eyebrows and can face some significant challenges when it comes to zoning laws. The Daily Hampshire Gazette reports that an Indiana-based company called Trinitas has entered into a contract to redevelop the former Babb family farm. Town zoning laws generally prohibit multiple residences on one parcel, but the state's so-called smart growth programs allow for exemptions to these rules. According to project applicants, about 20% of the units would qualify as affordable housing, with the rest being market rate. The development would include pickleball courts, a public park, and could potentially increase the population padly by up to 25%. Police are investigating after a car ended up in a Holyoke Canal. The incident happened around 1.45 p.m. on Saturday at the intersection of Canal and Lyman Street. The gray sedan was pulled out of a canal by a large tow truck. However, it was too deep for crews to make a rescue attempt. There's no information on who may have been in the car. This is the second time in a week that a car has gone into the Holyoke Canal. City officials in Westfield are denying all allegations of wage theft made by a longtime police officer. 
The Westfield News reports that Jason Perrin, a 24-year veteran of the police department, has filed a lawsuit against the city claiming he and other officers were not paid adequately for working overtime. Perrin has filed a lawsuit on behalf of more than 70 members of the Westfield Patrol Officers Coalition and is asking the court to designate it as a class action lawsuit. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Back to school season is often filled with anxiety as parents and children rush to get ready. Scammers often take advantage of the confusion. The Consumer Affairs Trend Micro Threat Alert has found a number of these types of schemes, including fake apartment rental scams targeting returning college students. For those struggling with diabetes and the consistently high cost of insulin, Amazon Pharmacy may have an answer. The company has announced it will launch automatic coupons in its pharmacy on over 15 of the most common diabetes care and insulin brands, with costs starting at $35 a month. Gree has agreed to recall 1.56 million of its dehumidifiers because of a potential fire hazard. Company says the appliances can overheat, smoke, and catch fire, posing burn and fire hazards to consumers. At least 23 fires have been reported. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at consumeraffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And uh, welcome back to the show. We. Uh, I'm very interested. I'm going to learn a lot, I think, during this segment because we have with us uh, the co-owner, uh, Isaac Moss, who owns, along with his wife, Angela, the Greenfield Garden Cinemas. Uh, and we have Isaac on the phone. Hello, Isaac. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So Happy to be here. I think you're about to have a little... The, the, the Garden Cinema, under its new ownership, is about to celebrate a little anniversary. Is that correct? Uh, in November, we're celebrating four years under new ownership. And what brought you to buy it? You know, I, we love film. We love cinema and had uh, been involved with the prior owners, George. I, I knew George back when I was an assistant manager for Hoyts up at the Greenfield Cinema, and he was running a sub shop. Uh, I was on the city council when the town took the building for back taxes and had to sort of stabilize the building And um, back in the early, late 1990s. And we just loved this theater um, and wanted to make sure that film was something that continued in Franklin County for the next generation. I think when I first, uh, I had an office in Greenfield for many years, uh, my law firm, and uh, I think on Chapman Street there was a uh, theater called The Showcase, I think, 
and the 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 garden was these were just throwbacks like the academy of music in in uh, Northampton, which is municipally owned, and like the Calvin in Northampton, these theaters were grand theaters. Did you have an experience with the, the Garden Cinema or the Showcase Cinema when you were younger? You know, I didn't move to Greenfield until 1990, and so it had already been chopped up into a sevenplex movie theater. But we, my wife had been here uh, when it was a movie palace, and we love hearing all the stories from the people who used to work and come here when it was an 1800-seat uh, theater. So let's talk about its origins. Uh, I was saying just before we went on the air uh, that the first talkies, the jazz singer, I think was the first talkie, and that was in 1927 that we went from silent films to talking films. Uh, when was the garden built? The garden was built in 1928 and opened in 1929. And, you know, those silent films are still popular. We're actually relaunching our our first Monday silent film series um, in September on Labor Day. We'll be showing the 100th anniversary showing of Our Hospitality with Buster Keating. And we have an accompanist, um, Jeff Rapsis, who comes down from New Hampshire. And people love those old silent films. Yeah, so... Uh, and also, I think it did some vaudeville and some uh, performing arts as well as theater when the garden first opened, right? It, it sure did. There, it was it was a center of the community. It remains one. But we had things like the uh, union meetings of the Greenfield Tap and Die and and Christmas parties for um, various organizations. It, it was a center of activity for the entire community. And in fact, I think that the uh, Garden Block, as it's called, uh, from its origin, I, I, I think that's on the National Historic Re- Register. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah. T- talk about that. What is uh, this history? It's The building is an historic building because of the kinds of things that you're talking about, the activities that it's had, right? Yeah, the building the building went on the historic register in the 19, late 1980s, um, shortly after it was... Um, cut up into a sevenplex, and uh, it it is one of the few examples of a colonial, the original multiplex, uh, the singleplex, was a one of the only two colonial market, colonial guardians in the country. The other one was an Athol, which is since uh, closed, but when you hear of garden theaters around, and there are a lot of them all over, they, they tend to be Italian uh, gardens. They tend to be uh, Greek gardens, European gardens of different kinds. This was the only, like, American colonial garden theater sort of celebrating the place where it lived. I think, um, Bill, you and I haven't had a chance to ever, I don't think, we've never d- discussed this, but I just want to, we're talking about history. When I was a kid, on Saturday morning, we'd pay 25 cents. The theater was, we for hours and hours and hours, I remember seeing High Noon and other things. There were yo-yo contests between films. There was a Schwinn bicycle that you would win. Did you have that kind of experience, Bill, when you were a kid? Nope. <laughs> well, nope. there goes Way that. too young for that. <laughs> Bill's too young for that. But I'll tell you, you still can have that kind of experience today. On uh, on the 27th, we're, we're doing free on-screen big video gaming for of Gran Turismo, the PlayStation game. People can come and play their play PlayStation on the big screen from 10 to 12 before the new Gran Turismo movie. So we still do lots of 
events like that where people get to do alternative programming, not just see the movie. Well, I, I did, and I want to go back to that. I want to talk about the kinds of things that you do for the community, and including your Cannes uh, Film Fest, and I want to go into that. But I, I just, what's interesting, the reason why I, I, I led with that um, little story is because I'm wondering about owning a movie theater in days where people could stay at home and watch films on their TV screen. And I know I love seeing things on the big screen. Is it harder to own a theater? these days uh, because of that, because people have other options? I, I think it's harder to do anything that people have to come out of their house for, you know, whether it's a retail store or a restaurant or a movie theater. I always say our biggest competition isn't the next movie theater down. It's getting people off their couch. Um, but we do, we make this a place of community. And at the end of the day, the reason why movie theaters have survived you know, radio and television and VHS and DVDs and cable is because people want a sense of community. There's a big difference watching a film with uh, hundreds of other people as compared to watching it yourself when you can throw the pause button on and the, you got to let the dog out and you get interrupted by the doorbell. It's an experience that you don't get interrupted from and you have a communal reaction and and there's a big big difference isaac and tell us this you just were mentioning multiplexes and single plexes tell our listeners who don't know about the uh, greenfield garden cinema um what it is now how big a theater how many theaters and like that yeah, so we have seven theaters. They range from 82 seats up to 214 seats. And we show a mix of first-run films, art films. We show classic retro titles, uh, all, a whole assortment. We try Because we're the only movie theater in Franklin County, we try to serve the entire community. And while we're on this topic and while we're looking back in history, tell us a bit about what you are showing now because pretty interesting, a little walk down memory lane. Yeah, in August, we're going, we've gone gold in August. We're celebrating 50 years ago and exploring 1973. Earlier in the month, we showed um, the classic 1973 film, Enter the Dragon, which, which is its 50th anniversary. And later in the month, we'll be showing um, the classic American Graffiti, George Lucas's first film. That'll show on the 27th and 30th of the month. Um, starting this week, we are going back to 1973 with a new film from Bleecker Street called Golda, looking at Golda Meir and the Yom Kippur War and a, a really beautiful look inside the sort of geopolitical experience of um, that period for a whole generation who did not live through it and, and really didn't get much of a chance to study it in school. Would you go back a bit to Buzz's question about your interest in film. How do you know about all of these films that you show? And are you the actual curator of what appears at the Greenfield Garden Cinema? Yeah, well, I love film. I grew up, um, my first movie was at the theater was E.T. and then Gremlins at the drive-in. And, um, I, I just so you weren't up. with Buzz for twenty-five cents uh, no, Saturday I mornings. I wish my grandparents were, and they tell me about it. All <laughs> ouch! Ouch! And you you no, deserve that, love, Buzz. 
It's, it's sort of a family love of this industry, and uh, we we just I loved watching old films with um, with my family, and seeing them on the big screen was amazing, and and having that experience where it gives a view of the world outside your sort of parochial. Uh, village where you come from, you get to see a larger piece of the world and what's possible out there. And and that's, for a young person, that is really um, eye-opening. And, and and I think it's a valuable experience. We, I do curate the movies that are here, but we always reach out to all of our staff and ask them about what they think is good that will be coming in. So you talk about these three movies that you'll be showing, these retrospectives of 50-year anniversaries. I'm wondering... Are they shown at different times? In other words, there's one large theater that, that I'm very familiar with, but then there are other smaller venues within the, the complex itself. So just tell us how that works. Yeah, so um, the there's two special film showings of uh, American Graffiti. It is a Fathom event, and so it'll show at 7 o'clock on Sunday the 27th and Wednesday the 30th. Um, tickets are on sale for those now. I can't I can't announce the ticket price for the 27th, but you might want to go look at that. Um, and for Golda, which is opening, it actually opens this week, We have, it opens on Friday. It runs every day, all day long. Um, we have early access on Thursday, and there's a special Fathom event on Wednesday that has a 30-minute Q&A with the uh, filmmakers. That's, that's really interesting. And by, by the way, like your grandparents, I remember when there were ushers with flashlights who brought people in and yelled at us kids for throwing popcorn at each other. A, a movie theater owner's worst nightmare is kids like me, right? You know, we love kids. We, you know, pop, sweeping up popcorn is the the best part of our uh, experiences because people we know people bought popcorn, went in and enjoyed, and you know they got scared by the movie, so the the popcorn bucket went up, or they were having fun with their friends. Um, kids can be unruly sometimes, but we have a good experience with them here at the Garden Cinema. Well, I remember being a kid. This is Dan. When I would go into the theaters and there was no advertising before the movie began, it was just blank. I remember that as a child. And then I said, hey, why isn't there any advertising? People were like, hey, it's just the way it is. Yeah. I remember when a movie came complete with cartoons at the beginning. And that was fun. I remember being outraged when you didn't get cartoons for the price of admission. Yeah, I, I I wish they still did that. They still sometimes do with a with a short that's being considered for Oscar buzz. But we 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 solved that problem by offering uh, free morning cartoons for for kids all summer long, or their free summer movie camp. In fact, this Saturday will be our last Saturday of free summer movie camp. At ten o'clock, we'll be showing Scoob for free. And I want to come back and talk to that right after uh, we we take a break for some messages because uh, your commitment to community, when I've got quotes from you and from Angela uh, when you first uh, bought the theater. And I want to talk to you about the relationship between the community in which it resides and the Greenfield Garden Cinemas right after this. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show Everybody in the neighborhood 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! Football season kicks off Saturday from New Mexico State against the Aggies. Join me and Patriots legend Pete Brock starting with a pregame show at 6.30 right here on your new home for UMass football, WHMP. Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or coworkers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with Isaac Moss, who, along with his wife, Angela, are the owners of Greenfield Garden Cinemas in Greenfield, uh, Massachusetts, a wonderful place to uh, go and, uh, and be entertained, be thoroughly entertained. Uh, we were talking about the, um, some of the, I don't know what to call them, projects that we have uh, to look forward to at the Greenfield Garden Cinemas, Isaac. And one of them, you were talking about the return to silent films. When is that going to happen? What is it? Yeah, so our, our we have our first Monday silent film series with Jeff Rapsis, who's an accompanist from New Hampshire who comes down and accompanies and, and really gives an introduction, tells you about the history of the silent films. That starts on Labor Day with the 100th anniversary of Buster Keaton's Our Hospitality. But then in uh, October, we'll have John Barrymore and Jekyll and Hyde getting ready for Halloween uh, in November. We'll be doing the Scarlet Letter with Lillian Gish, you know, a, a real colonial masterpiece. And finally, in uh, December, Douglas Fairbanks and Robin Hood. So those silent films are always the first Monday of the month and are a lot of fun. I bet they're a lot of fun. And uh, there's something about the Hitchcock Festival, is that right? Yeah, so sponsored by the Hitchcock Brewing Company, we have an Alfred Hitchcock 
Film Festival, which is the week of October 20th. We'll be showing Shadow of a Doubt, Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, Marnie, and Saboteur. They all play um, uh, three or more times that week, and a real fun um, time to, to look at the master of suspense right before Halloween. For you as a movie lover, as a theater lover, what's the difference between seeing a film like Psycho uh, in your living room on a smaller screen and seeing it in a theater on the big screen? What's the difference for you? Uh, First of all, you have the reaction of all the other people who are gasping at exactly the same time, right? Uh, and you have the the sound builds up in a in the movie theater, driving that soundtrack drives the the suspense that's going on. You're also in a completely darkened room that is free of distractions. You know, you're the people are shut have shut off their phones or or e- even if they're they happen to have them on buzz. They don't answer them and look at them during the movie because they know it's a distraction to other people. They, they, they don't have to let the dog out. They, the, someone's not coming, ringing the doorbell. They're not getting interrupted and not pausing. So you're seeing the suspense build with the timing that the director really intended. And, and it's, a, it's a totally different experience. I know you were a projectionist at the Greenfield Garden Cinema. I think when you were studying for the bar, it's attorney Isaac Moss with whom we're speaking. And, um, but I, I think that since you were a projectionist, the Garden Cinema has gone to a digital format, right? What's the difference between seeing it, you know, the celluloid kind of film versus the digital? Is it better? Is it worse? How? It's certainly different, and it's. It, I think what it is is it's designed for what the filmmakers want you to see. They want you to have that clean, crisp image. Um, film used to, you know, have scratches and, and nicks and lots of other uh, discoloration, and it was subject to projectionists, how they spliced it together. Um, and often, you know, in certain parts of the country, people cut out portions of films that they didn't what wasn't approvable for the local audience that that rarely happens today uh ar- around the country sometimes you'll get a warning because they from the theater but you 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 can't really mess with the film the way projectionists used to a lot of those old old films you know that the copies that exist they're all different because they were cut differently in different areas of the country um it is definitely a different feel watching a film on uh, a movie on film, but there are so few places. Almost the entire country has gone digital now. Um, I think there are a handful of places in major metropolitan areas where, where you can see a film rarely on actual film. Well, um, Isaac Moss, I want to thank you so much for sharing uh, the time with us today. I think that I, I love going to the Greenfield Garden Cinema. It is well-priced. It is really comfortable. It's in the heart of a community that is a beautiful community, and uh, it's a great place to go with your friends, with your family, and or by yourself. And let and, me hasten to add that there is parking because it's Greenfield and downtown, and you can get really close to the Garden Cinema and walk in, buy a ticket, get a really comfortable seat, and have a really, I think, wonderful cinematic experience. It really is. So, Isaac Moss, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, and good luck. And before uh, we go, I do have, I want to talk, I will be in um, in Deerfield this evening 
uh, beginning at 5.30 to 7 o'clock. There's an incredible gathering um, for a fundraiser to support the Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. It will be Congressman Jim McGovern, along with Senators Joe uh, Comerford and Paul Mark, Representatives Natalie Blay, Dan Carey, Mindy Baum, Lindsey Sabadosa, Aaron Saunders, Susanna Whipp, a lot of other people who are there to support our local uh, regional farms and the incredible work that they do and to help them after the disastrous deluge, uh, the impact that it had on our farming community, even though the Commonwealth is trying to help people out, it, it's, uh, it comes to, falls on us to try to uh, show our support of the people that bring us, the local heroes is what we call them, that bring us uh, healthy, uh, nutritious food that we can also uh, share with our uh, people who uh, might be suffering from food insecurity. So it is um, this evening at 12 Railroad Street at the Berkshire Brewing Company. It is uh, to support the, the uh, Massachusetts what Farm Resilience. What time? It is at 5.30 to 7 o'clock. This evening, again, 12 Railroad Street, Deerfield. It's to benefit our farmers, and I hope to see everybody there. Thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk today. Like us, try to remember, walk the walk. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov slash DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. WHMP Northampton and WR.